me to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. As we continue on in our study, uh, today we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find the passage beginning on page 977. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I encourage you to listen as I read to you what Paul tells these Ephesian brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, we come before you this morning and ask that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst, helping us to see and to understand wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray, Father, you would take your word and press it into our hearts and minds. Help us to see the wonder of your glorious gospel once again. And as a result, Father, help us to celebrate this wonderful picture of your church that you have given to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're right pretty much smack dab in the middle of our series uh, looking at the book of Ephesians. We began back in September and we'll be going on through the end of the school year. And here we are in the middle, almost literally in the middle between the ending of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was still in prison in Rome in the first century. He was writing it to Christians that were in that city or the area that is called Ephesus. And he was writing as an encouragement to these brothers and sisters in Christ on how it is that they could live in a place that was not very sympathetic, not very friendly to to Christianity. How can they live out their faith in a place that not only was not only comfortable, but often was very hostile to the gospel? It was the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was empire. It was a large and influential city by that 
uh, times standards, probably close to 300,000 people in the city when Paul was writing. And it was known by Paul because he had lived there for a couple of years ministering. He knew the people, he knew the, the ethos of the city, he knew it was a place that was full of sin and brokenness. And as with the other cities in the Roman Empire, those that lived there were expected to worship the Roman emperor. And also in Ephesus, they, in Ephesus, they had a great emphasis of worshiping the Greek goddess Diana. This was not an easy place for a Christian to live. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them, to spur them on to faith and good works. And he begins the letter with these first three chapters. And they are, as we've seen over the last couple of months, rich and deep with theological truth. Telling the Ephesians what is true. He told them things about who God is and what God has done. That salvation has come by grace and through faith in Christ alone. That because of Christ's work on the cross, they have been united to Christ by faith. And because of that, they are also united to one another. That the mystery of the gospel had been revealed in the life and the work of the Messiah who had come, Jesus Christ. And Paul finished the uh, chapter three that we looked at last week with this wonderful prayer for them and for us as well, that we would know and understand and wrestle with the love of Jesus Christ for us. And as he prays that he breaks out at the end of chapter three, that wonderful doxology, that wonderful prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. And then he transitions to chapter four. You can see it even in the, one of the very first words, that word, therefore. And what Paul is doing now is he's saying, I have been telling you over and over again what is true. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. What is true? The gospel, all of these wonderful theological, deep theological truths. And now, as we transition, therefore, here is what you're supposed to do. Here is what is true, chapters 1 through 3. Now, how are you to be living in light of what that gospel says in chapters 1 through 3? The gospel is the announcement of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. How are our lives to be different as a result of believing in that gospel? And where does Paul begin in telling them how they ought to live? He gives them this incredible, beautiful, wonderful picture of the church. Of the people of God who have a unity with one another. And who are filled with the gifts of God to be able to live and serve one another. And so what Paul is saying in these first verses of chapter 4 is that we are to be pursuing unity with one another in the church and that within that unity we ought to see and appreciate and marvel at and pursue a robust diversity of the gifts of God given to God's people all anchored in love and grace. You can see how Paul begins in verses 1 through 6 talking about the unity that they have because of being in Christ. He begins by saying, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because of all of these wonderful truths in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, here's what you're supposed to do, he says, and he goes on in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here is the first application that Paul gives them after this wonderful gospel truth is that they are to be pursuing and maintaining unity, the Spirit of the bond of peace. And notice he gives them a picture of what that looks like, what that unity looks like, the manner that it is to be lived out, how they are to to walk in this way, the the description of the attitudes that they are supposed to have. He says in verse 2 that they are to be doing this with all humility and with gentleness and with patience. Paul knows very well that pride destroys unity, that harshness destroys unity. That impatience destroys unity. And so he encourages them as they pursue unity in the church that they do it with all humility and gentleness and patience. He also gives them some examples or some means by which that ought to flesh itself out in their lives. That's the end of verse 2 and in verse 3. He says that they are to bear with one another in love, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love, he says. That word that he uses there, bearing, is the same word that is often used to encourage people to endure persecution and suffering. Get a sense of the extent that Paul is saying that they ought to be bearing with one another in love, working with one another, pursuing one another in love. Even to the extent as if they were called to persevere persevere through incredible persecution and suffering. And notice he says also that they ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's mind here. That this unity that they don't create. Notice he says that it's a unity of the Spirit. They are simply to maintain it and they are to do it with an eagerness. With an urgency. And that's the reason why he gives them the basis of this unity in verses 4 through 6. He tells them the grounds, the theological basis for pursuing this unity. There is one body, Paul says, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul giving them this basis or theological grounding for why they ought to have unity in their body, in the the body of Christ, he points to these seven one phrases. Now there's lots that could be said about all of these phrases that Paul uses here, the, the one phrases that he mentions here. But let me just draw your attention to one thing in particular that he says. Paul is being intentionally Trinitarian. Do you see what he says there? There is one body, excuse me, up in verse verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. The Holy Spirit being linked to the one body, the church. The Lord being linked to the one faith that the church confesses and the one baptism that it receives. And the Father being linked with the sovereign ruling over all of creation and being involved in His creation. What Paul is saying is that from eternity past, there has been this perfect unity and communion between the three persons of the Trinity. 
In perfect harmony, they have been at work in the work of creation, in the work of redemption, and in bringing all things to glorification. This is the basis that Paul gives them for why they are to have unity with one another in the church. It is the basis of the unity of the Trinity itself. There are so many different things that God's people could seek to be unified by and through. Ethnicity. Socioeconomic situations. Educational backgrounds. The choices of schooling for children. Vocations. Political convictions. But Paul understands that the kind of unity that Christians are called to maintain with one another in the church cannot be sustained unless it has an ultimate basis, not in those things, but in the biblical and theological truth of the Trinity itself. This is the first part of the roadmap that God gives to His church for what His church is supposed to look like. There is to be humble, gentle, patient unity lived out in love, anchored in the Trinity. But within that unity, there is also to be incredible, rich, robust diversity. That's what he gets at here in the second half of the passage in verses 7 through 16. One commentator looking at these verses made the comment that unity doesn't mean uniformity. That there's a difference between being unified and being uniform. God's people are called to unity, but we are called to unity in the midst of the diversity of who we are as God's people and who he's called us to be and the gifts and the abilities and all of the wonderful things that he has created in us. You can see that first in what Paul says here in verses 11 through 14 as he talks about the responsibility of the leaders of the church in equipping the people of God. He says in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice what he says about the kinds of gifts in the church, specifically about the leaders in the church in verse 11. This list given shows us all of these different kinds of gifts that God gives to his church, the leaders of the church, to serve the church. There are lists, uh, other lists that are mentioned in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4. But here Paul is specifically talking about the leaders of the church. We could spend a long time talking about all these categories that are mentioned, but simply notice that there are different categories of people, meaning that there are different gifts that are given to the leaders to use, different roles that they have, different nuances in terms of how they serve the people of God. But also notice in the beginning of verse 12 that they all do it with all these differences of gifts and abilities. The leaders all have the same purpose. What is that purpose? To equip the saints. Their purpose as leaders in the church is not to do all of the ministry of the church. Their purpose is to equip the saints, the believers in the body, the believers in the community together. And that word equip that Paul uses has a sense of training. It also has the sense of adjusting things over and over again until they're in their right place. In a medical sense, the word sometimes is used to talk about setting a broken bone. You see, the the, the idea that Paul is getting at here is that the leaders of the church are called to equip the saints. They are called to help them and and train them and to get them into the right places according to the gifts that they have been given. And what are they to equip these saints to do? Well, he gets at that at the end of verse 12. 
through verse 14. To equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. Leaders in the church, as diverse as gifts as they have been given, are to be about the work of equipping the believers so that the believers can do the work of the ministry of the church. And Paul further describes what that looks like. For the building up of the body of Christ, he says, the end of verse 12, has the sense of spiritual encouragement and strengthening and creating stability within the body. He goes on in verse 13 to describe it further, to talk about how they are to be about the business of helping people mature in their faith. That they ought to be more and more unified in coming to a greater knowledge of God. And in verse 14, he describes it even further, saying that part of what the work that the saints are to be doing, being equipped to do, is that they would help people so that they would no longer be like little children playing in the ocean, waves coming and knocking them over. You can just see the picture in Paul's mind. The young children standing just off the shore. Legs not quite strong enough to withstand the, the waves that are coming in and they get knocked down this way and then get knocked over this way. And Paul describes the waves that are knocking people around as false doctrine and biblical error and deceitfulness and trickery and craftiness and cunning. This is what the believers of the church are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry as they're equipped by the leaders. And before we move on, let me just reflect on that for a moment. Paul says that it is the job of who to do the work of ministry. Often our default is to say the leaders of the church. The staff of the church. The pastors of the church. They're the ones that do the ministry of the church. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that the leaders have a responsibility and they are to be equipping the saints. And the saints are to be doing the work of the ministry of the church. The leaders of Trinity, I'm thinking here specifically of the elders and the deacons and ministry leaders, ought to be asking themselves on a regular basis, how are we doing with equipping the saints? That have been called to be a part of this church. If you're a leader at this church. Then that is your job description. It should be in our hearts and our minds all of the time. Whatever ministry we are helping to be a part of. Whatever committee we are leading. In whatever way we are serving as an officer of the church. We constantly need to be asking ourselves. How are we equipping the saints? In a sense, we should be trying to work ourselves out of a job, so to speak, making ourselves non-essential so that the work of the ministry of the church isn't dependent on the leaders of the church as the saints are equipped to do that work. And by the way, that challenge goes true for your pastors as well. It's something that Pastor Gordy and I speak about regularly, even this past week. How are we doing with equipping the saints and during this time of the year, we usually, both of us, usually try to set some goals for what we want to focus on in this coming year. The things that we're going to put importance on. The things that we are going to put weight on. I'm becoming more and more convinced that this needs to be right at the top every time we make goals for the year. How are we doing in equipping the saints? Now, I do think that Trinity does a fair amount of equipping. We try to explain what we do in our worship services. We try to put application into the sermons. 
We have Sunday school classes, both for the adults as well as for the young people of the church. We do officer training. We do small group leader training. But I'm convinced that we always need to be evaluating how are we doing equipping and how could we be doing it better and how could we be doing it more. So let me just give you a practical application at this point. As you reflect on how the church is equipping you to be able to live out your life, if you think of ways that you need to be equipped, that you're not being equipped, share those with me. Let me know so that I can be reflecting on that in the session. Leaders of the church can be reflecting on that so that we can be doing what Paul says here in Ephesians 4. Paul gets at this idea of diversity of gifts within the unity of the body. Not only talking about the responsibility of the leaders, but also talking about the responsibility that every single believer has. Serving in the church. Notice what he says here about who it is that's gifted to serve in the church. Back in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 7. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That word grace there, I think, is specifically referring to spiritual blessings and gifts that are given to God's people. And he says, grace was given to each one of us. All of us in the church have been given gifts to serve the Lord. You can see it again at the end of verse 16. Or excuse me, in verse 16, where he says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's this, this picture that the whole body... Held together with every joint, each part working properly. Or you could even remind yourself of what Paul said back in chapter 2. In that wonderful passage about God's love to us and God's grace. That we've been saved by grace alone. At the end of verse, uh, uh, chapter 2 verse 10 he says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Speaking to the people of God, he says that you have been created to do good works. And those good works have been prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. Every believer in the church is given gifts by God to use in the service of God's church and his kingdom. You may not know what it is that he's given you to to serve, a a gift that he's given you a way to serve. You may not like the gift that you think that you have, or you may want a different one. But Paul's point is clear. Everyone has gifts to use to serve the church. And notice he speaks also about how everyone is gifted. Again, back in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us. How? According to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, the gifts aren't all the same. They're different. They're all according to the measure of Christ. They're according to the the goal that Christ has for His church. You can see it again in verse 16. As you see the various parts of the body, Paul refers to working together so that the body can grow. Not all believers have the same gifts. Not all of the same gifts have the same degrees. Paul gets at this in another letter that he was writing to another church in 1 Corinthians. Something you can pick up and and look at later this afternoon. But let me just read to you a couple of the verses that he, he, he has there as he talks about how 
Everyone is gifted, but they're gifted in different ways. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. God has called us as his people. He has gathered us together into the body, into the the church, into the family of God. And He has given us gifts to use to serve Him and to glorify Him. And they are diverse. It also helps us to see, Paul also helps us to see here how needed those gifts are. He said it in chapter 4, verse 16, that they are all needed, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, that's when the body will grow And build itself up in love. Or a little further on in 1 Corinthians passage that I read uh, a couple verses after where I stopped before. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If you're a part of the body of Christ then you have been given gifts to use to serve the Lord in the context of the body. And without you serving, using your gifts, the body is incomplete. It's lacking in some way. So if you're unsure what God's gifts are to you, let's talk and figure it out. And let's also remember that sometimes we don't actually have the spiritual gifts that we think we do. And let's also remember that we don't always use the spiritual gifts that we think that we have and the ways that we think that we should. It's coming together with God's people, the leaders of the church as you're being equipped. So we would come together in complete wisdom and discernment to help one another figure all of this out. Notice Paul also talks about how they are to be using their gifts. Again in verses 15 and 16 back in Ephesians 4. He says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. How? In love. That's exactly right. In love. Twice in those two verses, he says in love. And he says the same phrase up in in, uh, verse two as well. This rich, robust diversity of gifts being used and enjoyed by the body are to be done so in love. It's not happenstance that as Paul was writing his letter to the Corinthians, 
And he had this long list of explanation of members of the church and how they are to be serving in the church in chapter 12. And he also has another description of that in chapter 14. That sandwiched in between in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about what? Love. The love chapter. Because Paul knows that as God's people get together and they try to use the gifts that God has given them, they need to be reminded over and over again it is only through and by love that they will honor the Lord. In love means that there's to be no arrogance or pride. No one's gift is better than another. There's to be no jealousy, no anger or getting upset or being jealous because you don't have the gift that somebody else has. There's not to be any kind of sense of entitlement. This is my ministry. No, these are the gifts that God has given to each and every one of us in the church. So we ought to be humble. We ought to be gentle. We ought to be patient. We ought to be loving. Now I realize that as we think about all, this, all these things that Paul is saying, that there's a heaviness to it. How, how in the world can we live up to this? And I would say that, that there's virtually no way we'll ever live up to any of this unless we have the right and the powerful motivation to try to do all of these things. So what is the motivation that Paul gives them? Look again at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. What Paul is saying here as he comes to the end of this section is that the motivation that the people of God are to have in living unified lives in the midst of the diversity of their gifts and abilities and personalities is that they are to look to the love and the grace of their Savior for their primary and powerful motivation. You can see that probably even more clearly as we go back to the passage that we've skipped over so far. Verses 8 through 10. And for me and maybe for you as well, it's often a confusing passage. I mean, we have the beginning of chapter 4 and he's saying some things. We have the end of chapter 4 and it seems like that's connected with what he was saying at the beginning of chapter 4. But here we have verses 8 through 10 and it seems like he's just plopped down these ideas and thoughts. And it doesn't seem really to connect with what he's saying. But it connects absolutely. What he's doing in verse 8 is he's quoting from Psalm 68, the psalm that we looked at earlier in our service. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives some commentary on that verse that he quotes. It's important and it's helpful for us to understand the context of Psalm 68. I gave you a little bit of that earlier in our service. It is David's psalm stepping back and recounting God's victorious march from Egypt to the promised land. And specifically the arrival of God through the Ark of the Covenant into the royal city of Jerusalem, the city of God. David in Psalm 68 recounts how the people have been redeemed from Egypt. They have left Sinai and they are heading into Canaan, moving into the promised land. Pagan kings and armies are defeated. Conquest and plunder are being divided as things are being given to the king. And finally, finally they arrive in Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, and they ascend into the city. And later in time, the Ark of the Covenant will be brought into the temple. That symbol, that sing, that's the symbol of God's presence into God's city. 
It's a picture of God the King defeating and taking captive his enemies and receiving gifts from those enemies and ascending into his royal city and dividing the plunder with his people. You see what Paul does here is really amazing. He takes this Psalm of David and he applies it to Jesus. That's what he's doing in verses 8, 9, and 10. Jesus descended to the earth in His incarnation. He came to live a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father. And then He gave His life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of His people and to provide them with a righteous record. Through Jesus' life and work, He conquered our spiritual enemies, those things that held us captive, sin and death itself. And then He ascended back to heaven, rightly once again taking His throne. And instead of receiving gifts, Paul says Jesus gives gifts to his church, to his people, for their benefit and for their blessing. It is that picture that God's people must be gripped by. We must be gripped in a powerful way by the love and the grace of our Savior And how much He loves us and all that He's accomplished for us. And the many blessings and gifts that He showers upon us as His people. And the more that we have our hearts and our minds gripped by that gospel of grace, the more that we will be able to pursue unity and to celebrate the diversity of God's people and the gifts that we've been given. Being equipped and serving as He's called us to do. 1995, one of the movies that was up for Best Picture was a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus. It's a movie starring Richard Dreyfuss as Glenn Holland, a talented musician, somewhat successful musical performer, but someone who longed, deeply desired to compose a masterpiece that would make him famous. At about 30 years of age, Glenn Holland decided that he would slow his life down a little bit so that he could begin spending more time working on this wonderful masterpiece, his opus, that would make him famous. So he took a teaching position, a music teaching position at John F. Kennedy High School. Over years, he tried to write his symphony, his opus, working a little bit here, a little bit there, always discouraged, not able to compose to the degree that he wanted to. Struggling to get it out the way that he thought he needed to get it out in order to be famous. And instead, what happened is that Holland ended up spending years, decades even, teaching music and pouring his life into his students. One young girl who struggled to play the clarinet, clarinet, learning to love the instrument. Another young man who was a football player who couldn't keep rhythm to save his life, but needed to have the band credit in order to be eligible to play football. Another kid from the street who was mad at the world but discovered the beauty of his own soul through music. As the movie comes to a conclusion, the school board over which they oversaw the high school was dealing with a massive budget problem. And so they began to need to think about cutbacks in the programs. They decided to eliminate, among others, the music program at the high school. Despite Mr. Holland's efforts... The music program was removed, and so Mr. Holland was forced into early retirement. Dejected, as you would assume, 
But particularly so because he looks back and realizes that this wonderful opus, this wonderful masterpiece, this symphony, although he had put work into it, had never gotten any attention. It had not made him famous. Almost at the end of the movie, they show him at his last day of school, cleaning out his desk, putting things into a box, and he begins walking out of the school for the last time. As he goes down the hallway, he hears commotion, so he decides to figure out what's going on. He comes to the auditorium and realizes that the noise is on the other side of the doors, and he opens the doors and finds a room that is filled with the faculty and the staff and the students and even alumni. All of his old students had come back. He walked into the room to thundering applause, the chanting of his name. And looks up and sees the young girl he taught to play clarinet standing at the podium. Now the governor of the state. And she addresses Holland. We know that you never became the famous composer that you dreamed of being. But don't you see it today? Your great composition is what you did with your students. Mr. Holland, look around you. We are your great opus. We are the music of your life. And at that, all of the alumni and the students took up their instruments after having learned Mr. Holland's symphony. They hand Holland a baton and he directs his students past and present playing his wonderful opus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you understand that you are Jesus' masterpiece? You are Jesus' opus. He created us. He has loved us from before the foundation of the world. He has redeemed us. He has adopted us into His family. He has united us to Himself by faith and to one another in love. He has put us into this family of believers and He has equipped us with diverse gifts for serving Him and one another in love. And you are sitting in the midst of Christ's wonderful, musical, spiritual masterpiece. And the beauty of it is, you have been given a part to play. It may be a big part or it may be a small part. It may be an upfront part or it may be a behind the scenes part. But every single one of your parts is important and necessary and needed. Because of the glorious gospel of grace... We have been united to Christ by faith. We have been united to one another in love. As we celebrate and pursue the unity that we have with one another because of the gospel, we celebrate and pursue this beautiful picture of the diverse gifts that God has given to His people. All for the use for His glory alone. Let's pray together. Father, we stand in awe of this wonderful picture of what you are doing in and through your church. We're so thankful that it's your work and not ours. And we are so humbled that you choose to be at work through people like us. Thank you for the gospel of your grace and mercy. Thank you for uniting us to Christ by faith and to one another in love. Thank you for, through the work of your spirit, filling your church with a diverse group of gifts and abilities and personalities. I pray, Father, that you would help us to celebrate it and to pursue it here at our little church, Trinity, all for your glory's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have before us this morning in the Lord's Supper is one of the gifts that Jesus gives his church. 
because Jesus descended and came into this world and became one of us, because our King, King Jesus, defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death, because He took captive those things which were holding us captive, because He's secured our place of rest in the promised land forever, because He's finished His work and ascended again to His throne, and because He blesses us with every spiritual blessing, including the Lord's Supper, Therefore, we are filled with hope. We are strengthened in our faith. And we are motivated to maintain the unity that we have with one another. Celebrating and pursuing all these wonderful, diverse gifts that God has given to us in our midst. This meal is for God's people, for the body of Christ. That is, it is for people who have made a public profession of their faith and been baptized, connecting themselves to the body of Christ. A Bible-believing, a Bible-following church. If that's you this morning, then as the elements come around to you, eat and drink, be reminded of the wonderful gifts that God has given to us to strengthen our faith and know that as we come in faith, the Holy Spirit will be at work strengthening us so that we might go out and truly love and serve Him this week ahead. Let's pause now and thank Him for giving us this table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our great God and King, We are so thankful that you have given us this means of grace. We're thankful for this gift that you've given to us. We pray that through the work of your Spirit, as we come in faith and eat and drink, you would be powerfully at work to strengthen us, to fill us with all hope, to fill us with all peace, to fill us with a deepening understanding of your grace and mercy to us through Jesus so that we truly would trust and believe and go out and live as the people you've called us to be. Would you do this, Father, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.